Hello and welcome to Sermons from First Press, a weekly podcast from the First Presbyterian Church of Ann Arbor, Michigan. The scripture reading for today comes from the book of Malachi 3, verses 1 through 4. See, I am sending my messenger to prepare the way before me, and the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. The messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, indeed he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. But who can endure the day of his coming, and who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and like fuller's soap. He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver, and he will purify the descendants of Levi and refine them like gold and silver until they present offerings to the Lord in righteousness. Then the offerings of Judea and Jerusalem will be pleasing to the Lord as in the days of old and as in former years. Thanks be to God. And now let us hear the word of God that comes to us from Luke about our alarm clock, John the Baptist. In the 15th year of the rule of the Emperor Tiberius, when Pontius Pilate was governor over Judea, and Herod was ruler over Galilee, and his brother Philip was ruler over Iturea and Trachonitis, and Licinius was ruler over Abilene during the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, God's word came to John, the son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. And John went throughout the region of the Jordan River calling for people to be baptized to show that they were changing their hearts and lives and wanted God to forgive their sins. This is just as it was written in the scroll of the words of Isaiah the prophet, a voice crying out in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make God's path straight. Every valley will be filled and every mountain and hill will be leveled. The crooked will be made straight and the rough places be made smooth, and all humanity will see God's salvation. This is the word of the Lord. Well, it's Advent, and in Luke's gospel, John the Baptist is doing strange things in the wilderness. When we meet him in Mark's gospel, he's wearing camel's hair and eating bugs. And when the people gather to see what this is all about, God, John gives them the cheery holiday message Repent. Everything is all itchy and indigestible and unpleasant. And that's when John chooses to announce that the Messiah is coming, the one who will change everything for the good. All humanity will see God's salvation. Can we take the Advent hint? It's not going to be comfortable when the world is about to be saved. Prepare the way, the Baptist cries in the wilderness. Make straight the path. Donald John Trump being president of the United States and Michael Richard Pompeo, the Secretary of State, and Gretchen Esther Whitmer, Governor-elect of Michigan, and Bishop John Jakes and Paula White and Joel Osteen, the prosperity prophets of popular American religion. And this time the Word of God came to the church anyway on the second Sunday of Advent. The Word of God bypasses the power of the state and the influence of organized religion. As Bill Lamar has pointed out, God's Word tramps out into the wilderness and seizes John, a strangely clad man with even stranger dietary habits. 
Is God's word apprehensive of political and church power? Is it searching for the alienated and the disenfranchised and the dispossessed, like was Martin Luther King or Faith Fowler or Pope Francis, like John, like you and like me? God's ways are strange. We bypass John, but God seeks John out. We use God to prop up our grand designs and our politics that protect privilege. God inverts our priorities and tells us to start again. God fills the valley of our violence with peace and destroys our mountains of dishonesty. And even now, God is straightening out the crooked calculations of tycoons and oligarchs. And he's caring for the pitchmen of profit whom they employ. The conspiracies of those who dehumanize God's beloved children and communities of color to gain advantage, who value the accumulation of power and wealth above all else, are being leveled out by God's Spirit. Advent may be strangely out of phase with our time and our culture, but it is perfectly synchronized with the ways of God. I'm fascinated by whom the gospel bypasses here in Luke. It's Tiberius, Pontius Pilate, and Herod, and Philip, and Licinius, and Annas, and Caiaphas. They're not recipients of God's word. They're men left on the sidelines of God's advent. But they do have one thing in common. They're all powerful, and they're all in established positions. And yet God's word does not come and rest upon them. And this should give us all pause. Even for ministers, Annas and Caiaphas, whose places in the temple are portrayed as being left out of the circle of God's influence. In Flannery O'Connor's short story, Revelation, the central personality, Mrs. Ruby Turpin, is the large and overbearing wife of Claude, who is a hog farmer. She's also an unapologetic and outrageous racist. She classifies everybody, black and white, rich and poor, sick or well, according to this intricate scale of prejudice that she's continuously revising. Worst of all, Ruby Turban actually views her fondness for making distinctions based on race or class as her primary human virtue. Then one day it all changes for her. She said it in the crowded waiting room of her doctor's office, congratulating herself that she's neither black nor poor. Thank you, Jesus, she says, for making everything the way that it is. And then Ruby Turpin is assaulted by a young girl who dubs her as a warthog from hell. The girl hurls a heavy textbook across the crowded office and hits Ruby directly over the left eye. The title of the book, ironically, is Human Development. It leaves a big mark, but this public assault upends Ruby Turpin's entire world, for she sees the act to be more than the unhinged action of a distressed teenager. She sees this assault to be a message from God. So Mrs. Turpin... Is she right? Does God approach us in this advent to wallop us upside the head 
and call us revolting names. God's ways are strange, especially in Advent when God sends odd messengers like prophets and John the Baptist to prepare the way for the inbreaking of God. And before John, there were questions raised by Malachi. Who can endure the day of God's coming? Who can withstand his appearance? He is like the refiner's fire or the cleaner's soap. Both are fearsome images. Refiner's fire is the forced air, white-hot inferno that liquefies the metallic ores and removes their impurities. Fuller's soap is the heavy-duty lye-based detergent that's used to bleach blemishes from raw cloth. Fire and soap, says Malachi. Neither of these are cheery or Christmassy, are they? And yet we're told that the messenger who comes to prepare the way of the Lord comes with fire in one hand and soap in the other. He comes to boil off the impurities in our souls and to apply a coarse scrub brush to our spirits. A Hallmark Christmas movie character, Malachi is not. Malachi isn't really a name, though. It simply means my messenger, my angel. And God sends messengers and angels, and they are gods. We've trivialized angels at Christmas at more than any other season, it seems, and yet angel means messenger, and I believe God sends them. The writer Elie Wiesel once remarked, if an angel ever says to you, be not afraid, Watch out for you're about to receive a new assignment. Will Williman says that if you're ever touched by an angel, watch out for you're likely to become pregnant. And Karl Barth pointed out that there are angels there at the birth of Jesus and there are angels at Jesus' tomb upon his death as witnesses to the ultimate truths about God in our world. Angels in heaven praise God all the time and And in our songs of praise, when our chancel choir sings and our children gather, we join voices in one heavenly angelic choir. God first sends Malachi to us, my messenger, to people who doubt God's care. Malachi comes to those of us who are hopeless and cynical and invert good and evil and are indifferent to God's purposes. And then if we didn't get the point, God then sends the stranger, John the Baptist, to those of us who simply go through the motions of prayer and service and worship, but really don't expect much of God. Yet God does not smite or scold, and God in heaven doesn't deliver a new covenant of words on a set of stones, or he doesn't give us any more promises. What God gives is simply God. God gives God's very own self. This is the heart of Advent. The gift God gives is the gift we want in our deepest of hearts. It's not anything you could set down on a list or pop online to Amazon and order or you could go to the mall to seize. It's not what you can wrap and put under a tree. We want a God, a God that makes us more than who we are and God who gives us God's very own self. When Ruby Turpin returns home to her farm from her calamitous visit to the doctor's office, 
she clomps out to her barn and picks up a water hose and begins washing down her pigs with a powerful stream of cold water. And she's furious. She's raging at God. How dare God to suggest that she, honorable citizen, good church lady, is a warthog from hell. As soon as she's alone, she looks to the heavens and roars, Why did you send me a message like that for? How am I a hog and me too? How am I saved and from hell? How am I saved and from hell too? That's quite the question. And it's a question we're quite familiar with here at Advent and in the pre-Christmas season. How can I spend hours creating the perfect Christmas for my children and family only in an instant to lose patience with them and snap? How can I be cheerily out shopping for my partner one moment and then rudely dismiss him or her publicly in the next? How can I have a fabulous playlist of Christmas tunes going and at the same time wish that people would stop yammering away about the needy, the lost, the cold and the hungry, the homeless. How am I saved and from hell too? This question points to a classic theological proposition that Malachi and John lay directly in front of us. How God both loves us and judges us, or more accurately, because God loves us, God judges us. That's the deep truth that lays at the heart of Malachi's prophecy and John's strange wilderness appearance. Our compassionate God so loves us that God's great desire is to see us freed from the grunge that covers our souls and destroys the fabric of our communities. God is not saying, I refuse to let you come over for a visit until you wash up. No, no, God is saying, that we are welcome all the time, that God is perfectly comfortable with our untidy selves around, for God is saying, I am here to help you clean up, to assist you to throw off the blemishes that block you from truly experiencing the joy that awaits you in the life of Christ. In Advent, we imagine our comfort, our forgiveness, our dreams coming true, But Malachi speaks of the refiner's fire and the fuller's soap. We want forgiveness, a healed relationship with God, a a fresh start, a do-over with our family, a new year with our colleagues at work. We seek a faith that makes more of our lives and of our communities, not less. We forget that God's ultimate purpose for us is that we will be holy, representative, pure, and clean. C.S. Lewis imagined showing up at the gates of heaven. Would it not break the heart if God said to us, yes, it's true, my child, that your breath smells and your rags drip with mud and slime, but we are comfortable here and no one will upbraid you with these things nor draw away from you. Enter into the joy of heaven. Should we not reply with submission, sir? And if there is no objection, I'd rather be clean first. It may hurt, you know. It may hurt. Even so, sir. Even so. John's baptism is not a call just for individual 
faithfulness and basic goodness. It's nothing short of the labor pains that precede the inauguration of God's reign here on earth. John is calling for the communities of the world to change spiritually and politically and economically in anticipation of the advent of the Holy One. John is a direct threat to any nationalistic theology or power. Enlightened spiritual leaders who transform spirits and yet leave the social order uninterrupted don't get beheaded by the state. Isaiah's soaring poetry inspires our vision. The valleys will be filled and the mountains and the hills made low and the crooked will be made straight and all flesh shall literally see God's salvation. This is no private matter, this advent, for the earth will never be the same and humanity will never be the same. A great and strange power is coming into the world. So why does God look to judge us? Does it flow out of some, some strange unresolved desire to punish? I think quite the opposite. God judges us in order to save us and to give us hope. God seeks to cleanse our hearts and souls of all the dross and impurities so that we might have life and have it abundantly and joyfully. God seeks to reconcile the whole world to God's own purpose and in the process to correct the myriad of wrongs that divide and destroy communities and nations and ecosystems and oceans and planet. At the conclusion of Flannery O'Connor's story, Ms. Turpin has a vision, a revelation. She's standing outside on her farm looking at the stars and she sees a ladder connecting earth and heaven on which all the people in her community are climbing upward toward heaven, moving in the very same groups and classes of people that she has imagined them to be stuck in, the groups that she's arranged them to be part of, blacks and whites and working people and wealthy and poor and country people and farmers and merchants, all collected just the way that she imagined it. But she and the people in her tribe are at the very back of the procession. They're the very last group following all the people that they've hated for so very long. O'Connor observes they alone are on key, yet she could see by their shocked and altered faces that even their virtues were being burned away. In a most extraordinary way, John and Malachi are truly our contemporaries. They stand with us at the collision of two forces, at the intersection of where the world's resistance to God meets the irresistible force of the one who is coming. The axe is laid to the root of the trees. There they are and there they will remain, thankfully, summoning us to rethink and reorder our lives preparing us to stand in awe at the edge of the manger, looking at the Holy One born in human form. In his Pensies, Blaise Pascal wrote, Comfort yourselves. It's not from yourself that you should expect grace, but on the contrary, it is expecting nothing from yourselves that you will find hope. A power from outside is coming. It will bypass the sinners of power. Yet in the power of a wild advent, hope 
this strange God will comfort and change us. God's ways are strange, but there's a great clue that comes to us from O'Connor's story. The girl's name who hurls the textbook across the doctor's waiting room is Mary Grace. Thanks be to God that God comes to us in many myriad and strange ways to give us hope this Advent season. Amen and amen. Let us continue on in the spirit of prayer. Let us pray. Prince of peace, mighty God, truth giver, grace sustainer, hear our prayer this day. You call us to be people of love, honest and true, upright and strong. You call us to come before you with our hearts open to you, to embrace the unknown unfolding mystery of you that is reflected in our lives, to put aside our need to be right and in control, and to live in this Advent season with hope, with expectation, with longing. You ask us to put our faith in your hands and let you lead, that we might grow drawing near to you and your presence ever appearing in this broken world. You call us to these things and so much more. Sometimes it feels like you ask a lot. But dear Jesus, we want to give a lot. In giving and in becoming yours, we are changed. We find a faith that is real, that matters, that lives. In this season, O oh God, you know that we worry about what to give to everyone that matters to us. Every beloved family member, every close friend, all those who make our lives better who deserve to be remembered at this time, the mail carrier, the server, the teacher, the caretaker. Lead us to ponder amidst all the busyness what we are giving to you, what we are giving to you. So receive our gifts as we form them, offering what we have to those who have not, living with more simplicity, doing what we can that all would have what is finally and truly important safety and love, connection, direction, and faith. We want to give. Give up our anger, give over our self-righteousness, give away our greed and entitlement, our privilege, that others might have abundant life. We want to give. Give away old hurts, give over reliving old stories long resolved. Get unstuck from emotional places where we've been unable to move forward with new life. Lord, help us take on the hard work of this kind of giving, that we might know the full joy of living. Oh Lord, we live in expectation, we hope, we wait, we yearn for the good news to be proclaimed, and we yearn to be your good news. On this Sunday where we draw near to truth and faith, let us live in the faith of what seems too good to be true, knowing it is too good and too true. On this second Sunday in Advent, point us to peace. Peace with our imperfect selves. Peace from the striving for things that don't bring life. Peace from unceasing self-flagellation because we haven't met others' expectations. Let that peace allow us to accept others more fully and to even find a peace in this crazy, chaotic world. Peace that comes from knowing we are still and ever in your hands. Peace that is generated by our hunger for justice, our active effort to do what we can to repair the world. Make us to work for peace for those who are oppressed, 
or marginalized or manipulated or used. Show us the pathway to peace with those who refuse to embrace it, those with a deficit of wellness, those who take their brokenness out on others. Grant us the gift of understanding, good boundaries, and knowing when to leave the active work of loving some hard people to others, those more able to do what at times we cannot. Turn the hearts of those who have lost their way and turn our hearts toward them, opening our arms to those who once were lost but now can be found by your grace. For the church everywhere and for those gathered in this sanctuary of hospitality and welcome, come and through comfort or discomfort, complete the work so wonderfully begun in us through the spirit of you, Christ. We pray it using the name and in the words of our Lord Jesus who taught us to pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Thanks for worshiping with us. For more information, visit us on the web at www.firstpresbyterian.org or send an email to info at firstpresbyterian.org. See you next week for another sermon from First Press.